Welcome to Mysteries, Monsters, and Mayhem. I'm Shannon Lawrence. And I'm M.B. Partlow. Quick content warning before we get started. This podcast may contain language and disturbing content, so enter at your own risk. Hello. Hello. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? (laughs) Fan-fucking-tastic. I'm just tired of boob sweat. (laughs) I'm putting it out there. The entire world to know now. I'm tired of being hot. I'm tired of sweaty. I'm particularly tired of boob sweat. Yeah, it's gross. I am liking the rain, though. Like the afternoon thunderstorm Mm -hmm. that comes through some days. So nice. Apparently, there was a big, there's been some flooding up way up north. So that's not good. Yeah, because I heard two people died. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, well, anywhere there's been fire, floods come next. Mm -hmm. That's what we learned. It's like a mini apocalypse mm-hmm. every time. Speaking of which, I have to renew my flood insurance that we only got after the Waldo Canyon fire. We just got that bill and I'm like, do we need this anymore? Because the yes. problem is home insurance doesn't cover any kind of flooding, Mm-mm. meaning if your water heater goes out or something like that. So, but it's. No, and it doesn't cover acts of God. <sighs> An atrocious. Acts of God. <laughs> God. Acts of God. Acts of God. So. <laughs> Yuck. So, uh, uh, your hubby had a birthday. He did. By the time we, by the time this airs, it'll be like a month. But when is that airing on my anniversary? Is that your anniversary? It is. Oh, happy anniversary! Thanks. Happy anniversary to you. (laughs) (laughs) And that is all I am going to sing. You are all very welcome. So welcome. Twenty six years. Wow. Yeah. That just means we're older. Ah. Well, really, at this point, that's what it means when you have an anniversary. We just had our 29th, so. Yeah. Yep. There it is. Well, I haven't heard of anyone getting younger, so. Just uh, Benjamin Buttons. Okay. But other than that. All right. So I'm not completely done with Kill Creek yet. Okay. But I have, like, this tiny smidgen left, so they're back in the house. And that's all I'm going to say, because they won't be spoilers. Okay. <laughs> the um, By Scott Thomas. I enjoyed that book. I'm trying to remember if I... I think his writing's very good, but the horror aspects are insanely minimal for mm-hmm. a 400 and something page book. Mm-hmm. Like, read it not because you want to read horror. <laughs> and every time it gets to a horror thing, it's a couple pages and then it's done. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I should be able to, next time we meet, I should be able to return to you uh, The Only Good Indians. Or the only good Indian. Can't remember. If it's only singular. good Indian. But, I think. Um, I think it's yes, because I picked that back up because that was just so intense. I had to, yeah, put it down and take a step away for a minute. But I picked it back up, and it's what, there's a couple of certain scenes that what, once you get past them, it's like okay, I'm gonna let that soak in, and then I'll yeah proceed. I haven't read my heart's chainsaw yet either. We're talking about Stephen Graham Jones' mm-hmm. books. Outstanding author. He is, and he's. Fairly prolific. He, mm-hmm. he, it's at least one a year, but usually more, it seems like, book that he releases. Which one was it? Was it The Only Good Indian that was on all the lists a couple of summers ago? Mongrels was. Ah. His werewolf book, which makes sense, because here's the thing. First time I met him was at Author Fest, and he was talking about werewolves. He's always loved the werewolf mythology. <laughs> so when Mongrels came out, because I guess... There was something that I hadn't heard before. Now I've since seen it in other things. But it was something about drinking water from the footprint of a werewolf had always 
intrigued I've heard him. that. Mm-hmm. I hadn't before. But yeah, so anyway, him putting out a werewolf book, I was like, well, duh. It's <laughs> his favorite. But, <laughs> and it's really good, of course, because it's like a coming of age for a teenage boy. But right. I think that's the one that was on the, the list. The only good Indian has been on a bunch of lists too, though. Right. But last summer, it, every, it was one of the, I think it was last summer. It could have been two summers ago when it was the It Books, like everybody was reading the Southern Book Club's Guide. Yeah. So like, it was Grady on. Hendrix. It was on um, lists with that book. Here's what everybody's reading this summer. You've got to read If this. it was last summer, it wasn't Mongrels. Oh, then it I, was only good to India. Okay. Because Mongrels came out a few years ago. Okay. Yeah. Grady Hendrix, love him too. Yeah. He was at StokerCon. I never even ran into him. Wow. So I didn't go to panels. I, that could I be. I go to what I'm on. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. So, anyway... Yeah, so that's what I'm reading. And then I started reading. I thought I'd left it in the car because I took it with me somewhere the other day. <laughs> and then I pulled out another book. And then my book, it was right there, Kill Creek. So I would have been done last night, ah. is what I'm saying, if I hadn't been weird. I, uh, I've been, I picked up a few, because I read a couple of heavy things. So I picked up a couple of toss away, um, what do you call them? Cozy Mysteries or mm-hmm. um, Amateur Sleuths. I'm not sure they're. Entirely cozy. But the one I just picked up, I don't like. So I thought to myself, just today, I thought, I don't have to read it. If I don't like it, I don't have to read it. Yeah. That's yeah. how I'm going through my to-be-read pile quite quickly. Pulling books out. But you know what I found in my to-be-read pile? I was so excited. Joe bought me the sequel to um, Handmaid's Tale. Oh, yeah. And it's been a hot minute since I've read that. And no, I didn't watch the series. So I said, oh, my God, I have to find... The um, I have to find the first book before I can read the sequel. It just makes more sense that way. And when I was doing my reorganizing, I found it. Okay. Uh, I don't. I read the first one. I haven't read the sequel. I started watching the show, and I discovered that that's not a show you watch if you have PTSD. Ah. Uh, uh, when it's active. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what the right term for it is. <laughs> when it's when it's in the middle of a surge. So I, then I just never went back because unfortunately now I associate it with that time oh, period because mm-hmm. I started watching it and tried to get through it. <laughs> so now I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to watch it. I know it's a good show. It was good when I was watching it. I, you know, I had to, well, I've mentioned before how hard I found Stranger Things yeah. season four. And I, fi- I did finally finish it. But I was kind of like, I, I had to make myself. Hmm. Yeah. There was a lot of bullying. There was so much. There was just a lot of persecution mm-hmm. and bullying and going after the wrong people mm-hmm. and blaming the wrong people. Mm-hmm. Like all of that was very rampant. So yep. yeah, it was a like I I was very excited by the Nightmare on Elm Street nods and the and the horror aspects of it because I feel like they really kicked up the horror aspects of it. Yes, but for some reason they felt like to kick up those aspects they had to then. Just start kicking their characters, I guess. Yeah. I'm just tired of watching Elle get beat up. She yeah. gets beat up every season, all season. She, no, she had some lighter moments. <laughs> Was it last season when she went to the mall and... Yes. Okay. Did that so. whole girly thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was like... But this one, it was just like... It, it was like, let's knock her down. Let's spit on her. Let's kick her for about 45 minutes at a time. I couldn't... Yeah. 
It's like they watch too many 90s action flicks where, like, they just get beat up and beat up. You know, mm-hmm. Bruce Willis always, always got the shit kicked out of him and yeah. then he would persevere, yes. right? So maybe they're doing that. I just, there was drama because the actress who plays Eleven, I guess on an interview, said that the, uh, what are they, the Huffy brothers? Huff- the something brothers. Anyway, the dudes who have created this world, she said that they were being a little too sensitive or weak, whatever, and they needed to kill more characters off or something like that. And then like, okay, now that I've seen the end of that season, I can understand that comment. Cause there was, have you watched it all the way to the end? Yeah. Okay. So there's somebody who didn't die. Then I'm like, why, why is that person not dead? (laughs) There you go. And that might've been what she was talking about without being able to say it. Right. Because why would you give away a spoiler if you're in it? And you and knew you're not Tom Holland. It, yes, and you knew what was going to happen to cute little rock and roll boy. I'm like, hello. He could have just had a sign on his head. In- <laughs> Disposable character, red shirt. <laughs> yes, he should have been just like the guy last year. Yeah, there's always red shirt. Pretty I guess much. there could be more if they really wanted to kick it up a notch. I was. Is it Paul Reiser? I think so. He plays. He's in Aliens, and he's the the mm-hmm. big bad that's not an alien. And so in this one, he was actually like a stand-up guy. I'm not accustomed to him playing a stand-up guy. Okay, but do we ever find out what happened to him? I don't think so. <laughs> it's we just leave like, him at a certain he's in, juncture. Yeah, he's in a... spoil it. Yeah, he's there, and then we go on, and nobody ever says, whatever happened to that guy? It's like Ginger Snaps Mom. She goes well, she's into in the, the sequel. But she goes into that party looking for her daughter, and we just leave her there. Oh, do we? We do. Because then they do their whole, woo, sister thing, we'll call it. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> huh, I don't remember. But yeah. Because you just, when she I She has said, like the finger in the little Tupperware. Yeah, because I was that like. That she burped. What happened to her mom? And you looked at me and you're like, who cares? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Which is a valid point. But I was like. Mimi, clearly I still don't care because I still yeah. don't remember that You're we like, don't find what? out what happens to her. <laughs> Whatever. I'm like, she's not the story. She's just a really weird Midwestern mom yep. foil <laughs> yep. for the story so that she can burp Tupperware with a finger in it. Yep. It is. It is great. Yes. She is quite an amusing character, but. I, burping the Tupperware is a classic. <laughs> with the finger in it. Yeah. I'm like, somebody's mom went to Tupperware parties. Whoever <laughs> put that together. <laughs> All right, well, do we want to get started? Yes, I will. I will jump in. Do you enjoy going to the grocery store? If so, this message is not for you. But if you're like me and procrastinate going to the store, Instacart is a fantastic option to ensure you no longer have to. Save yourself a trip and go through Instacart, where you can get a delivery through a personal shopper in as little as one hour. My experiences have been great so far, with my personal shopper texting me before substituting another product, letting me know when they were on their way to my house, and letting me know it had been delivered, all via text. If you click on our affiliate link in the show notes or on our website, you get free delivery on your first order over $35 and you help out our show at the same time. It's the perfect time to give it a try. I have to thank Thing 2 for bringing this hot tip to my attention. It was someone I'd never heard of. So (laughs) we're going to go back to World War II. And there was a time when I would not talk about World War II, not because I had traumatic memories or anything. I'm not that old. But I belong to a book group and I belong to this book club for however old thing one is like 
we started the book club before I was even pregnant with her. Okay. It's a long time. And sometimes we got instants where we read a lot of World War II books. Uh, like a lot, a lot. To the point where I... People do love to write a memoir, a history book, a historical fiction about World War II. They do. Yeah. It's like... The most romantic war or something, uh, from apparently. what I can see, from the way it's treated. Yes. There's it, so many romances that It is that the time. most romanticized war. Yeah. Because it, we were great, right? Is I, that I it? Even that though was... we didn't enter until... Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> so we weren't that great. But anyway. Yes. So, but this is a story I had not heard before. Because who wants to publicize the story of a woman who takes matters into her own hands to protect herself and others? <laughs> A woman who was actually a leader and didn't sit around waiting to be rescued. Sorry, uh, that is my... Sewing flags? <laughs> yeah, sewing flags. That is my problem with a lot of fairy tales. Is I'm like, ugh. How boring. Why don't you sleep until a prince comes and ra- <laughs> molests you Dude. in your sleep? Yeah. There, I have a <laughs> meme. I don't think I've shared it yet. I have such a horde. Uh, such a staff. <laughs> you do. I have a meme and it's like, instead of kissing her, he leans her and he's like... I've got chocolate. <laughs> and then the next frame is her. Oh, yeah, sitting up. <laughs> okay. So we all know that I am not a history buff. So, but I do have to give a little bit of historical background for this. So it's going to be very brief and very, very basic. So don't, don't look to this next little bit for in-depth. I'm not going to know all about World War II when you're done. No. That's you're lame. However... I can tell you the Japanese invaded the Philippines just 10 hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm. I didn't realize it was that. I've never heard of that. I did, right? Okay, so we both learned something. So, um, Douglas MacArthur was ordered out, and he had to leave troops behind on the island of Corregidor, we're going to go with. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, I apologize in advance because I can't pronounce anything. Um, it, but that was, um, it defended the entrance to Manila Bay in the city of Manila. When 76,000 starving and injured American and Filipinos surrendered on April 9th, 1942, which was what, like th- four months, three, four months later. And um, they undertook what was known as the Bataan Death March, mm-hmm. which we've, almost everybody has heard of that. That was a 60 to 70 mile forced march that saw the death of thousands of prisoners to illness, starvation, and murder. Up to 18,000 people died on that march. And what's really astounding and short-sighted to me is that a lot of places where you look for this information, it only gives you American casualties. Yeah. I'm like, were they the only people there? I do not believe they were. We're very selfish. (laughs) Yep. It is said that more men died from Japanese mistreatment in the first four months at the prison camp than they did in the previous four months of active fighting. So that's what... This was really horrific. I mean, I don't know that a horror author could make up something as horrific as some of what happened here. Oh, yeah. It, It just... Yeah. Truth is always more horrific. I mean, torture. Barbaric. Yes. Torture, slavery, forced labor, inhumane treatment. (laughs) Rude. (laughs) Well, they took, if they came in, they took businesses away from the owners. Mm -hmm. They starved people. They didn't give them access to medical supplies. 
They would perform surgery without anesthetic. Weird. This sounds like the American, <laughs> the Americans when they were doing shit to uh, reservations. Uh huh. Speaking um, of barbaric, yeah. <laughs> the only political organization allowed was one organized by the Japanese. And here's how how frighteningly familiar does this sound? Schools were only allowed to teach lessons approved by the Japanese. I mean. So, cough. I'm, Texas writes all our textbooks. <laughs> cough. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, good thing there's no modern corollary to that yeah. one. Yeah. Keep going. I can find modern corollaries for all this shit right now. <laughs> so, every Japanese military installation, any place they set up a camp, had a comfort station, mm-hmm. which is not a comfort station. It is not for my comfort or yours. <laughs> Um, these held enslaved women and girls and sometimes gay men for the sexual servicing of the Japanese troops. They, the women were called comfort women and they weren't, they were called comfort women. It did not matter how old they were. That makes me angry. Yeah. Five-year-old comfort (laughs) woman. Yeah. Yeah. So Nieves Fernandez was 36 years old and she owned a wholesale business until of course the Japanese invasion and they took it away from her. And she became a teacher after that and became fearful that the Japanese would take her female students to become comfort women. So she fought back in the only way that she had open to her. She, Oh my God, I love her so much. She would dress all in black, go out barefoot with this bolo knife and commit swift and silent killings. She once she started doing this, it goes back and forth. So there's two theories. Either she joined the men in her area who were already had a guerrilla group, or she organized the guerrilla group. Not entirely certain, so I can't say for sure. But and here's the thing: they made shotguns from gas pipes loaded with gunpowder and old nails. There's still a thing. They make these incredibly accurate shotguns in the Philippines. And if your home is broken into, you have to check to make sure your gas pipes weren't stolen. Because that's more. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, well, she used the bolo knife, which is similar to a machete and is primarily used for clearing vegetation or trailblazing. So it's very common. It's around. It's the reason we had so many hatchet murders, because that was what was to hand. Right. So they had the bolo. That's what she used. She was also apparently a crack shot with those homemade guns and when they were able to steal weapons from the Japanese. She would explain, she explained to the Americans, and th- there's one picture of her with a knife at an American's throat demonstrating, obviously not really cutting him, how to, her method. So you sneak up behind somebody, stab them behind and below the earlobe which severed the carotid artery and internal jugular, causing immediate unconsciousness. Also, they were not able to shout. She said, when you do this, and then you once the blade is in approximately two inches, you twist and thrust upward. Mm-hmm. And she said they couldn't shout. Their reaction was this intake of breath. And then it was just gurgle, gurgle, and lowering them to the ground. Good. All right. I'm like, Thank you I, for the instruction. <laughs> I don't know. It was everywhere. Everybody talked about her method. Break into my house, somebody. I want to test it out. <laughs> so she is credited with being the first and only female guerrilla commander in the Philippines. She led 110 men to attack the city of Tacloban. Again, apologies if I've mispronounced it. 
um, and they were credited with killing 200 Japanese soldiers. The invaders put a, a bounty, the Japanese put a bounty of 10,000 uh, Filipino pesos on her head, but she was never captured and she was only wounded once. So she had a scar, a bullet scar on her arm, which I, when you think of all the operations she carried out, that is pretty, that's a pretty good mm. way to go. She led her troop to liberate troops. She, they sabotaged Japanese supplies and supply lines and conducted hundreds of raids on enemy camps. So, I may, I may just be in a pissy mood, well, you know, because I'm conscious. But one of the articles I read defined her motivation as her motherly instinct toward her student. But I couldn't find anything to back that up. Yeah, you that look on your face, you're right there with me. I'm calling bullshit. Yeah. Because... It's like women can't fight unless there's a child Heaven in danger. Forbid that we have an incentive like a man might. Yeah. You know, I, that's not being motherly. Yeah. How about being just a human being who cares for other people? Right? It was Oh, well, Schindler was being fatherly. Oh, apparently. Did they ever say that? No! <laughs> so, yeah. Call him bullshit on that one. This story astounded me because I had never heard it before, but I do want to point out she wasn't the only woman to fight back. There's a woman named Maria Rosa Henson, who at the age of 15 was repeatedly raped by the Japanese in her hometown. And she was just, this woman was just fucking pissed. She was, the word they used frequently was enraged. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. I'm with her on that one. She began to relay reconnaissance information until she was captured and arrested in 1943, and she was forced to become a comfort woman. And she was still so pissed off that anytime she could get to the gate around the compound, she would pass the locals information about upcoming raids and attacks. Any kind of information she could get, she would pass along. Awesome. And she was rescued after nine months by a guerrilla raid on the camp where she was being held. Now, she went on, this always astounds me that, and it's just the resilience of humanity sometimes, that a woman who goes through this yet goes, because the the guerrilla fighter, oh, where was she? In South America? That I talked about probably in the first season. Probably. The fact that they endured these horrific ordeals and still went on to get married and have children. Yeah. So she married a man named Domingo, had three children. Worked in a cigarette factory to support her family for decades. And at the age of 65, she decided it was time to tell her story of the atrocities that she not just witnessed, but experienced. So in 1992, she wrote and published a book called Comfort Girl, Slave of Destiny. So by telling her story, she was really the first one. This inspired other women to tell their stories of being forced into the sexual slavery by the Japanese. And they were eventually joined by other victims from Korea and China as well. In case you want numbers, it's estimated that 200,000 women and children were forced to become comfort women. While Japan originally, of course, denied everything, mm -hmm. and I'm going to get so worked up in a minute, they, the women filed a class action lawsuit in 1993. Now, the Japanese government eventually apologized to some of the women 
and they established the Asian Women's Fund, which collected money from private Japanese citizens to create atonement payments. Okay. So that sidesteps the actual government taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. Oh, fuckers. Um, approximately 200 women, which is what, 1%? Of 200,000? Yeah. Receive, I can't. I math. didn't agree to do math today. Okay, I'm sorry. I, just, <laughs> I did it before and I went, oh, that's it. So, anyway, out of 200,000, 200 women received payment from the fund. Yeah. That's helpful. I read some quotes from her book. I'm not going to include them. They're brutal. They're they're very blunt. And it's not, I don't believe her, the, the little bits that I read, it was not sensationalized. It was just, this is what happened. And it's just lays it right out. What was her book called? Comfort Girl, Slave of Destiny. So the story, oh, okay, that's what I was like, wait, how, how long is this going on? So here's where I start to get pissed off. Like I would have start. Been, yeah, like I haven't been pissed this whole time because the story isn't over. The women who were used and abused by the Japanese are still fighting to have their stories told and to have the atrocities remembered. So as recently as 2019, The Japanese government is still fighting to erase these women and their memories. There are no art exhibits that touch this topic allowed to be exhibited in Japan. (laughs) A statue by a Filipino artist, Jonas Rosas, was removed with a backhoe. And then President Rodrigo Duterte, I again apologize, um, his term as president just ended last month. Okay. It was, uh, it'll be two months by the time this comes out. It was in June. He said he did not want to offend Japan. Too bad. Uh, right? The Japanese. I feel like they can take it. <laughs> but here's the one that really chaps my ass. The Japanese government filed a claim with the U.S. Supreme Court in 2017 to remove a comfort woman memorial in Glendale, California. Oh, uh, no. They argued it was an impediment to their diplomatic efforts. See, you've got you've got Germany, who took responsibility ultimately, eventually, for yes. what they did in 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 World War II, what they allowed to happen, all of mm-hmm. that stuff, right? And they've since like they've got you go there, and they've got all of the camps mm-hmm. and this and that, and historic markers and stuff like that, right? Because they've tried mm-hmm. to take responsibility, and then you have oh Americans and Europeans in general, yes. and. And the Japanese, Japanese. apparently, which is interesting because these are, it's like the more, what's the, what is the word? The, the ones who are supposed to be the biggest powers. Yes. On the globe. Right. Can't take responsibility for their shit. Yeah. So I, cause I'm like, what gives another country, a country that we were at war with at this time. Yeah. The right to come here. And tell us not to have a memorial. And tell us not to have a memorial because they lose face. Well, maybe you shouldn't have fucking been... That is a big cultural thing, though, in Japan. But Maybe they shouldn't have acted like fuckwits. Barbarians? <laughs> fuckwitted barbarians, and then it wouldn't have been an issue. That's crazy. Um, they also agitated for the removal of a statue on private property in Bavaria, Germany in 2017. And what they succeeded in doing is having... So it's a statue. They got the explanatory plaque removed from the statue. So there is no historical context. If you know what it is, great. But if you don't, there's nothing there that will tell you what went on, what happened. They're paying way too much attention to what other countries are doing. Uh Uh-huh. It just infuriated (laughs) me. 
to protect. I'm like, can't you say we made a mistake? We made a horrible mistake. So, um, my sources for this, it just leaves me gnashing my teeth and spitting. Wikipedia, of course, Esquire magazine, um, an article by Mario Alvaro Limos, PacificAtrocities.org. There are great sources if you want to find out more about this. The obituary of Maria Rosa Henson in the New York Times, which was written by Seth Mines. And there was a News Info website that had an article by Cody Sapita about how they're still fighting to have their, for the recognition, to tell their stories. And I'm like, you can't suppress what you did. No. It's just, I mean, you can for a while, yeah, perhaps, but at some point you have to just take responsibility for it and stop, <laughs> stop fighting it. So I actually am switching the one that I was going to do after because oh. we had, we struggled to find links today and I think you'll see why Okay, this one at least is linked. All right. So I'm doing the grandfather of the Sinaloa cartel. In October 2011, it hit the news that an 87-year-old man had been arrested for drug trafficking. His story would inspire the film The Mule, starring Clint Eastwood, and he possibly directed it. Today, I'm telling you his story. Leo Earl Sharp Sr. You think he was born senior? (laughs) (laughs) Was born May 7th, 1924 in Michigan City, Indiana. In World War II, he earned a Bronze Star Medal for his service in the Italian campaign, which lasted 344 days and was seen as like one of the more brutal campaigns in World War II. Saw over 15,000 men killed or wounded. They were working their way through the Dolomite Mountains. Mm -hmm. And there's like, it was like the biggest battle one of the biggest battles in the war was the battle for mount battaglia or something like that battaglia so anyway it was a big bfd that he was among this troop of men he also received other decorations from his time in the army he was in the 88th infantry so i'm sure that comes up like if somebody were into historical stuff they might recognize that not much else is available on him in these earlier years there's not like a memoir about this guy or anything Though he did say he'd owned an airline company, a small one that had gone bankrupt. He was married to a woman named Anne with whom he had three children. It took digging to find that. So in the movie, there's a lot of differences in the movie because I saw that first and then I looked him up because I was interested in the story. But he's, he's, his wife, they're like divorced or estranged or whatever. And there's all this drama with his kids that didn't happen in real life. That's just part of the story making. Ah. He ended up in the flower business at some point, doing quite well for himself. He wasn't just a florist, but became known as a horticulturist. Horticulturalist. There we go. (laughs) Easy for you to say. Not today. (laughs) Who hybridized flowers. His specialty was daylilies. And there's even one named after him, the Hermercoalis. Hermercoalis. Or Asylum (laughs) Leo Sharp. There's not a lot of hard words, but they're all right here <laughs> in the story. They're <laughs> all in one paragraph. It is. That they, you wrote. They said that, the, I know, <laughs> the flowers were a pinkish purple. Apparently, I pronounced it all fine in my head. He named his business Brookwood Gardens and became well known. It was located in Michigan City, Indiana. He specialized in creating flowers with various bright colors that were small. They were small in stature, these flowers. <laughs> 
His expertise was so sought after that he would welcome busloads of visitors to his gardens at times and travel to speak on horticulture and hybridization, wearing leisure suits of all black or all white. He had an all black leisure suit and an all white leisure suit. <sighs> During President George H.W. Bush's time in office, Sharp was even invited to the White House where he planted daylilies in the garden. Hmm. One gardener with a lily blog said, he was just a stud. He had a 70-year-old <laughs> swagger. I just love that so much. I had to include it. He had a 70-year-old oh, swagger. I've watched video of this man. I didn't see that swagger. <laughs> I saw an ornery, cantankerous old coot is what I saw. His most famous bloom was called the Ojo Poco and is still popular today. Wait, the Ojo Poco? Uh-huh. It's like a little eye. Oh. Which makes sense when you look at a daylily. Okay. I just, I would like to just keep saying Ojo Poco. Okay. <laughs> Do it. Open a restaurant. Yes. (laughs) At one point, he even had a second farm in Florida. Unfortunately, after all his success, the modern era robbed him of his ability to keep up with other florists. After having created at least 180 new registered varieties of flowers and winning international awards for his creations, people stopped buying flowers from catalogs and started ordering them online. Ah. And he 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 was in his 70s. It's hard to adapt to computer civilization. Yeah, but it sounds like he might have had enough money to, I don't know, hire someone. I mean, he hired, he had farm workers, but. Oh, you hire somebody. He just, well, he was stubborn. Yep. So there were conversations with people and he was like, I have no interest in learning that. So at first he had this beautiful, thick color catalog of his flowers. And they said as it went, they got thinner and thinner and then they were black and white. And that's, you could trace him losing that money basically through his, his catalogs. So the buses stopped coming. His catalogs were thrown in the garbage and Sharp found himself facing down financial ruin. No one cared anymore that he had created beautiful, delicate new flower braids. No one invited him to speak any longer. So he was just put out. And one of the things that he keeps, he kept saying was his doctor said he was going to live to a hundred years old. So he was worried about how to support himself till he was a hundred years old. This was his, his (laughs) retirement. I mean, he hadn't retired. He was still in his seventies trying to run this. Right. I mean, this is obviously a hard worker. As someone who's been, Talking a lot about retirement planning, I get it. Yeah. And so that's why he was like, I have to find a way. So he did have a staff, like I said, including several migrant workers. And one of them heard of his troubles and approached him telling that he might know of a way to get him a financial opportunity. And it was, he basically connected him to this person who connected him to this person who, yeah. That opportunity involved driving down to the border in Arizona from Indiana, allowing some men to put some things in his truck, a Lincoln Mark LT pickup, then drive that truck up to Detroit, Michigan, where some different men would remove the packages from his truck. At some point, he would receive an envelope of money. At first, he was simply running money. So they tested him by having cash. So if he got busted, right. it's cash. It's not illegal to have cash in your truck. <laughs> but once he proved himself, he started running drugs. At one point, he was bringing in over $1 million per year of his cut. Wow. And his reach was extended to places like Boston and Chicago. He would go down to Arizona. He would pick up at multiple. So in in the city he had to go to, there would be multiple houses in an area. And mm-hmm. one would have, this house would be for Detroit distribution. This uh, house would be okay. for Chicago. Yeah. And so he was like the only person by the end who was allowed to like go to all of them and know where they all were and pick up a bunch of uh Wow. Yes. 
a bunch at once and then go up and then drive to multiple cities to drop them off. That, uh, that money allowed him to renew his flower business. For a decade, he worked for the Sinaloa cartel run by El Chapo, trafficking drugs. Because he was an older man in his 70s when he started, no one looked twice at him. He was stubborn and cantankerous, and he ultimately ended up having a good relationship with some of the men he worked with. The guy in charge in Detroit, Viejo, which I had to, I was like, I had to look. for Because I was like, why are they calling him old? Viejo <laughs> is old. And it actually turns out it was most likely thought to be a sign of respect because he wasn't old. Ah. Anyway, Viejo went on vacation to Hawaii with him multiple times. So this is how, like... Wow. Yeah. Sharp's daughter lived in Hawaii, which is why he went there. Anyway, these two became great friends. In fact, the rules got bent for Sharp a lot in the cartel because of everyone's familiarity with him. And I think that they did that. They kind of humored him because he was this cantankerous. Mm -hmm. Man, I think that reading about him, Clint Eastwood did a really good job of depicting that in the movie because... I mean, they're like, you can't come in here and look. And he's like, why not? You know, like. Well, Eastwood is a cranky old man. I know. <laughs> he talks to chairs, but you can't take him away from me. I grew up on Eastwood movies. No. I, and he's a brilliant director. Yes. So, but yes, he is. But he's also a cranky but old he man. But they did a, did a good job of showing how easily okay. that might have been achieved. Yeah. Like with these people who are used to. I mean, they shoot you in a second, right? And here he is breaking rules all the time. And they're like, well, it's just ta-ta, grandpa. You know, like. <laughs> so, yeah, and there we go. They called him ta-ta or grandfather. And unlike other mules, he was allowed to drive his truck directly into their garages and stand there chatting while they loaded the products. Normally, your car gets taken. They put some shit in there, build some secret compartments, right. whatever they do. And you're not allowed to know what's in there. You're never allowed to see the product. Right. And then they bring that shit back to you. But no, he would just, oh, he just drove right into the garage and stood there chatting. So, <laughs> wow. It's important to point out that he was well aware of what he was doing. So I've given this background. I get it. He had financial trouble. I get he he was trying to figure out the rest of his life. And, but he was aware. And he did argue that in court. At one point, he's like, I was doing this because there was a gun to my head. And it's like, really? The whole time you were driving? Like, you made it through all those states and you couldn't tell anybody? (laughs) (laughs) Multiple times? He would be quoted at one point after his capture as saying, All God's plants that cheer people up are created for a purpose, to take depressed people's minds and make them feel good. He was also fully aware of what he was doing from the beginning. On the other hand... He was known to use his money to help others, and the money he put into his farm allowed people to remain employed, but he did use his money, donate his money, okay. help other people. Okay. So it's a mixed it's a <laughs> yeah. mixed thing. Yeah. But cocaine is a dangerous thing to be responsible for distributing to, say, kids, yeah. right? I mean, he yeah. wasn't a dealer on the street, but he was bringing that to the dealers. But he was enabling, he was supplying the dealers. Yes. Not directly, but... I feel like it's easy to be like, oh, little old man, let's feel sorry for him or what's... And I, so I want that balanced. No. While I think that I, I get his motivation, it's still mm-hmm. ethically an issue. Okay. In the end, he was still the perfect drug mule. He was not the reason for the bust. He did not himself get busted. Okay. It was a small-time drug dealer who got busted by a DEA special agent named Jeff Moore, played by... What is that? Bradley Cooper. Oh. In the mule. The dealer agreed to be an informant because uh, uh, busting a low-level street drug dealer right, is never a, a no. big deal. It doesn't lead you to the big people unless you can use that. And otherwise, you just got some simple little stupid charge and there'll be 20 more to replace them. 
He took the DA to a man named Ramon Ramos, who was the bookkeeper for El Chapo and the Sinaloa cartel. Just like the dealer, Ramos turned pretty quickly, asking for immunity and witness protection. Having been the bookkeeper, he knew everything, and he was willing to take a lot of people down with him. Moore said busting Ramos was the equivalent of getting Al Capone's bookkeeper. Wow. Because this was a massive cartel. Mm -hmm. In fact, I read an article that said since that bust, like, street price on drugs has escalated, like, shot Ah. sky high because they were such a major contributor to the drugs on the street. The bookkeeper was able to let the DEA know when and where some of the drops would occur. Moore was surprised by the sheer volume and the massive income, unaccustomed to seeing one drop bring in $2 million. He thought the first big drop must be an especially big one. So that first one he sees, and it was like 1.5. And he's like, oh, that's, that's, this is a big one you brought me to. And Ramos is like, no, this is, this is <laughs> what it's like. This, this is the most profitable cartel. So this is when Ramos gave Sharp up. So Sharp was bringing in $2 million per month on his own because he was so prolific. The pay was typically $1,000 per kilo delivered for a mule. You would get $1,000 per kilo. He had become so successful, never catching the eye of officials, that he was given the large drops. He was the large drop guy. So he got to interact with people like the bookkeeper, which other people Mm -hmm. wouldn't have. And the cartel trusted him. He had been doing it for a decade. I imagine any mule that lasts for a decade is going to have some measure of trust, right? right? Moore asked Ramos to wear a hidden camera. And they did this. He did this at multiple situations. So they were getting, they were hearing Viejo. They were hearing all these bigger people through Ramos's mics. Now they were on to Leo Sharp. And on October 21st, 2011, after seeing video footage of Sharp, as well as having utilized multiple wiretaps through this time, too, a trooper named Craig Ziasina, or Ziasina, of the Michigan State Police pulled Sharp over as if it were a standard traffic stop. Unbeknownst to Sharp, there were a dozen DEA agents arranged along the road as well that he'd passed and they'd kind of fall in behind. Mm -hmm. Sharp got out of his truck and approached the officer. He said, what's going on, officer? At age 87, I want to know why I'm being stopped. And that video is available online and I did watch it. He does. (laughs) The cops walking up to him and that door opens and now he bursts this little man (laughs) with hair coming out of his nose and ears. and, (laughs) And he's just, oh, super pissed. He'd always driven the speed limit, followed the laws of the road. He had no idea why they were pulling him over. Although when the DEA was following him, by the way, bearing in mind he's 87, before they pulled him over, Morrison Sharp was swerving all over the road and driving erratically. (laughs) In fact, they thought he knew they were behind him and was trying to shake him because he was so all over the road. He almost hit a semi. And they were like, he would have just destroyed his truck had he hit the semi but then he jerked it back over so what i'm saying is he shouldn't have fucking been driving anymore right the trooper found him to be confused trying to find his license and registration and rambling during their interaction a drug sniffing dog was brought in which alerted on the truck because you know he's saying i gotta go i got things to do and they're like well we just have to check with the dog really quick you know they're still treating it like it's a normal traffic stop no dea agent has shown up yet so the drug sniffing dog's brought in, it alerts, and he has like this cover over the back of his bed. So it, it you know, lifts up on one end right. and you close it and it locks. So he starts, oh no. They're like, my dog alerted. We need to look in the back of your truck. And he's like, I don't got the key. I locked it at my sister's in Iowa. That's what he said. Oh my God. And so he's, you know, he's fighting that. And finally they're like, sir, let us have your keys, you know, and then he knows. And what is it? 
you hear when they go to open the back, you hear him like, shit, or something like that, right? (laughs) He knows it's over. The jig is up. That's right. So they do. They open the back, and it's still all, because it was all captured on the dash cam of the trooper, Mm -hmm. and that's why you can watch everything. So you're still watching on that camera when they bring in the dog, and they open it up, and the the cop lifts up the dog, and boop, puts it into the back, right? (laughs) And then you can't see the dog anymore, but that just amused me. I was like, I would think that it would be enough that they could look, but nope, they sent that dog in there and in there were just like clothes and a whole lot of coke. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) when the, and then here's the other thing. So he said, oh shit, when they get to that point, right? And then they put the dog in there and he just starts mumbling. Why aren't you just kill me now? Let me just leave this planet. The trooper, and the trooper goes, well, why would we do that? You know, like, why? And Sharp replied, because I have things to do. (laughs) And again, just look it up. There are so many places that had the video of him. In all, this sting would bring down 19 members of the Sinaloa cartel. Higher, so that doesn't sound like a lot. But these weren't street dealers or anything. Including a 57-year-old drug runner named Walter Ogden. So he was the second oldest. (laughs) And Viejo. Sharp refused to cooperate and give any information on others associated with the cartel, but... So he didn't turn in his friend Viejo. He refused. He never talked. But he he was having memory problems. So they ended up looking through his truck, which is a mat, just filled with food wrappers and stuff, because he'd drive and he'd go through. They watched him go through a drive-thru and get a burger and a shake and, you know, get back on the road. And he'd just chuck it into the back. But anyway, they found a handwritten phone number on a scrap of paper and it ended up leading them to Viejo, who was, his real name was Pedro Delgado Sanchez, who lived in Florida. Oh, God. So he got busted because he had to write down his phone number because he didn't remember it. <laughs> On the wiretaps and during questioning, it was stated repeatedly that Sharp had become irritable and seemed to be dealing with dementia, but they were still using him to drive these long distances to run their drugs. On one of the wiretaps, it was heard from Viejo that Sharp had to call him sometimes to be reminded what they had just discussed and where he was going. Oh, God. At one point, he was in the city and he got lost and he had to call him because he didn't remember where he was going. And so, like, a contact from that place had to come and lead him to where he was supposed to be going. So, clearly, he was Uh, suffering from worsening dementia. He shouldn't have been on the road anymore, let alone making long-haul trips. That's why I'm like, it just, ugh. We were hit by an 88-year-old woman years ago, and it was hell. (laughs) Afterward, she died. But you shouldn't be on the road after a certain point. (laughs) Anyway, Sharp would later claim he tried to get out and was forced to continue at gunpoint. Like, he said that. And also, I would, you know, it sounded like from the wiretaps, he was trying to get out. Like, he was saying he was done. And they would kind of convince him to continue without force. At one point, they said brainwash him into, like, let him try to, which I don't feel they were using the word right for what they were saying right in the quote. But, yes, they were trying to influence and control him to keep doing it because it's, they like, they had discovered how good it was to have these older men yeah. who nobody's going to pull over, right? So, El Chapo, head of the Sinaloa cartel, was not busted in this bust. His real name was Joaquin Guzman, but he was arrested in February 2014 in an unrelated sting. So that is when he got busted 
and they believe the Sinaloa cartel is still going, even without that head, that a right. new head took over or whatever. But again, they are still struggling, like... Good. Right. <laughs> in court, Sharp's lawyer portrayed him as a war hero who had haplessly gotten involved in uh. something he didn't understand. He didn't know what he was running at first. He didn't, you know... He was quoted as saying, Mr. Sharp is a part of a great generation. Before we were even born, he was on top of mountains fighting Nazis. That's not how we honor our heroes, whether they've fallen from grace or not. And I mean, he literally was fighting Nazis in the mountains, but that doesn't mean it's okay to be a drug mule. Drug, de- drug mule? That's, no. His dementia was played up. Though it was a fairly recent development. He hadn't had dementia for 10 years. No. While being escorted out of court, he told a reporter on camera that he'd kill himself before he'd serve a day in prison. And I mean, he yelled it. I watched that video footage. <laughs> They're talking to him. I guess he'd already said it. And the reporter's like, Mr. Sharp, Mr. Sharp. You know how they do. And you said before that you would you would kill yourself before you'd serve a day in prison. And he was like, I will. I will kill myself. Like he's yelling at him. And it was just, Jesus, dude. He said, I won't live in our toilet with bars, ever. I'm going to get a goddamn gun and shoot myself in the mouth or the ear, one or the other. At one point, Sharp told the judge, I'm really heartbroken I did what I did, but it's done. Which is the only time he really expressed any sort of, well, damn. (laughs) I'm sure he was sorry that he got got caught. He asked the judge to keep him out of jail and allow him to pay $500,000 by growing papayas, a fruit he discovered in Hawaii for the American government. He said, it's so sweet and delicious. His lawyer said he would struggle in jail due to his advanced age and dementia. But somewhat surprisingly to me, the judge didn't care. Sharp was sentenced to three years in prison, receiving that sentence on his 90th birthday. Oh, my God. Which can technically kind of be considered a life sentence, you know? Like, in prison, you're going to age a lot faster. Yeah. You know, it's it. So. So here, I don't, I obviously do not have any intimate knowledge of the prison system. Would people fuck with a 90 year old in prison? Do you think? I don't think they would unless he was a child predator or something like that. Right. I'm like, so I'm like, he might not. But have, it's not a great life. And no, it's not, it's, it's not an easy life. It's not a great life. But he wouldn't have been getting attacked. Or, or, hopefully not. I, well, anyway. I mean, if he's terrible, if somebody did something terrible, then I would like him to be harassed, whether he's 90 or not, because that doesn't excuse you. But yes. for a drug dealer, no, I don't think so. Uh, I He was allowed to keep his daylily farm. So they said it can keep running while you're in jail. So I'm assuming he had workers he trusted and they kept it going for him. The judge, Nancy Edmonds, stated that using dementia as an excuse for what he'd done was an insult to people with dementia who did not turn to a life of crime. She said his crime was not victimless and that it wouldn't set right to show him special treatment. That's why she said she sentenced him to jail time instead of making it just a fine or something like that. In 2015, they allowed him to leave prison after a year for humanitarian reasons. His health was declining rapidly. And sure enough, in December of 2016, he died at 92 years old. So he would have died in prison had they not let him out. Wow. He's now buried in the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, located in Honolulu, Hawaii. And I didn't look it up. That sounds to me like maybe a military. It sounds like it. Uh, burial What was place. it called? National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. Hmm. That does sound. So I'm thinking that it would make sense to have World War II veterans buried there, considering the whole straight thing. But he didn't. It seems odd to me because he didn't serve there. He did not serve there, but I, that's why I'm thinking it's just maybe or, a place that they send. And his daughter lived in Honolulu. I was going to say, unless his daughter had... So it was probably he'd been there and he was like, this is beautiful. I want to be buried here kind of thing. Aside from being the oldest drug mule, he was also the most prolific. 
he would in the end, not just for being old, wow, but become very well known among the drug trade because he was so prolific because he did such large deliveries and got away with them. You can't. The other ones, if you have a little car, you have a couple hidden compartments. You have, uh, yes, you, you know, can't. not that many kilos. But somebody with this big ass truck that would never get pulled over so you could fill a truck bed with Coke. That's a big deal. And I'm going to, we are the Millers. So in my right. <laughs> if he just had an RV, he could have fit so much more. And Jennifer Aniston. Well, yes. <laughs> so he has become an urban legend. Like his legend mm-hmm. has grown among truck runners in all this time. So. How was the adaptation? How was the movie? I liked it. It was a good movie. Uh, it was, again, you have more sympathy for the character than you probably should, but that's how these movies uh, work. Uh, yes. They want you to like the character. Otherwise, why are you watching it? Right. So I felt like when I read it, I was like, okay, you can see where, you know, anything romantic, anything family-wise is going to be more made up. Yeah. Right? And they have a thing, like, where he gets kidnapped at gunpoint. And I had found this, so it's in my sources. It's like uh, Hollywood versus reality, history versus Hollywood. So Ah. they take a movie that's based on something real, and they break it down with questions. Like, all right, did this really happen? Was this really how this... It was actually really interesting. I've never found that before, but... No. Since I love looking up, like, a a story based on reality and finding out what the actual truth is, Mm -hmm. I'm like, how did I not find this site? So, yeah, anyways, like, in one of them, they take him at gunpoint and threaten to kill him and stuff like that, and they said, no, that was never said that that actually happened, that sort of thing. It was just to spice up a movie Mm -hmm. you know well yeah but again i really i really did find it interesting after reading this they really do convey to you how this could happen how this old man who breaks all the rules and bitches at them and crank you know cranky and all Mm -hmm. this still gets to such a level so my sources wikipedia abc7 chicago news leo sharp el chapo's 87 year old drug mule by mark oliver on all that's interesting NBC News, History versus Hollywood. There's a true story behind the mule, the Sinaloa Cartel's 90-year-old drug mule by Sam Dolnick for the New York Times Magazine. I keep running across Sam Dolnick. He must be a huge reporter for, like, the New York Times because he. this is not the first time I've cited a story by him. I just It's not like I can remember which ones, but I knew the name when I saw it, and I was like, I don't know any journalist I, name. No. I, do, I do get the Sunday Times, but um, I don't always look at who wrote the article. <laughs> Shame. I know. Shame. Yeah. So see, that that was a super tame story. It really was. Yeah. But I was just amused by it. And I liked the movie. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. (laughs) Sometimes we just amuse ourselves. That's right. And And it's still a true crime. And this woman, the one I did, the guerrilla warfare fighter, I was just like, you go. (laughs) You do. You sneak up behind those motherfuckers. That's right. And Stab them. Not that I would advocate that on general principles, but invading I would forces. during a war. Yes, in, 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 during a war, I would. Listen, I grew up on bed knobs and broomsticks. There's if there is a war, you have to fight them, even if you have to use magic. Well, alrighty then, because it's uh, they uh, England being invaded. It's been whatever. a long, long time since I've read that or seen that. Yeah. So. I just watched it a lot, and then my siblings loved it, so that means I had to watch it uh, yeah, even yes. and Then I think my kids even liked it, so then I watched <laughs> it even more. Eventually, something I'll probably never watch it again. <laughs> oh, I watched Protocol last night, the Goldie Hawn movie, where she works out, like, it's called Lose Safari. And 
This is a young Goldie Hawn. This is Overboard mm-hmm. time for well, probably before Overboard and post Private Benjamin. Best friends, Private Benjamin around that same okay. era. But I think she was a little older than Private Benjamin. Okay. She looked pretty young in that. That one seems to have been first. I was going to watch that, too. It's all my comfort watches. I, mm-hmm. I've been watching a lot of Burt Reynolds, which led me to Best Friends, which led me to Goldie Hawn. I love Overboard. Yeah, I haven't watched it again. I like it so much I didn't watch the remake. Because I'm like, why? I watched the remake and it was cute. Was it? I like Anna Ferris. I was going to say, I really like Anna Ferris, but... They changed it enough. Okay. That it wasn't the exact same thing over again. But so. she's going... Bub, bub, bub. Because they've broken her mind. <laughs> but Jean Smart is in protocol. Really? And so they're, it's her. like Hooters, this restaurant kind of, except uh-huh. they dress like animals. It's loose safari. Oh. But they're like sexy animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's Jean Smart and like the tiger print, oh. unitard and everything. So that was fun. I'd forgotten she was in it. I just wow. remember Goldie Hawn was in it. And the vampire guy from a... Mm, nope. <laughs> Like, I gotta have... You like it. He beat, bites an apple. Oh, Chris Sarandon. Yes. Isn't I it? I do like him. He's in it, too. I haven't watched it in forever, but it's one of those ones I loved as a kid. I loved Goldie Hawn movies, because that's when all that shit was coming out, exactly the right age for when I was living at the theater all the time. Yes. And my problem is, now that I have all these streaming services, mm. I sit down and I pull up a, one or more of the... And I'm like... I always think, well, I should watch something new, and I'm like... Comfort. I just want to watch Buffy the Vampire <laughs> Well, so I went on HBO and it was to watch Protocol because Jeff had looked up where it was because I have it on DVD, but it wasn't showing up on. Well, I don't remember if I have it on DVD. I know I have Private Benjamin. But yeah, so that was, I had been talking to him because a bunch of our DVDs fell off our system that we oh, upload oh, right. them to so that we can stream our own movies, right? And so it's Matt, then we have to find the DVDs, which. Since we don't use those, there's all these rubber made crates that have the oh. DVDs in them. So I can upload. So anyway, it was a whole thing. Because I was looking for 9 to 5 as well. And oh, it had fallen off. I love off. 9 to 5. It's on there now. But anyway, I went to HBO to watch Protocol. And after I watched Protocol, you know, it brings up all the similar, right? And I was like, oh my God! Everything's like, <laughs> it has Private Benjamin, it has Overboard, it has all these other movies. So I'm going to be spending the next few days on HBO oh, after I watch my that. horror movies from Shudder. <laughs> But for real, but then I went and I was like, well, I don't think I've, okay, I've seen it, I'm sure, because my mom loved Elvis Presley, and so I grew up on those movies and John Wayne movies. Doesn't mean I remember them, doesn't mean I've, right. so if I say I haven't seen it, I probably have, but I don't remember it. I watched Viva Las Vegas, which I hadn't uh. watched as a thinking adult human being, <laughs> I guess. And at the end, and I was like, he's a fucking asshole, the whole movie, <laughs> and she marries him and that's supposed to be a happy ending? Fuck that. So maybe some things aren't meant for me to watch them for the first time now. Well, um, speaking of movies, we talked about the fact that, or you mentioned on Facebook that Winnie the Pooh is now public domain. Yes. And so there's now a slasher movie coming out. Yeah, what's it called? Honey and Blood or something? Blood and Honey. Blood and Honey. So the reason I said that movie is not for me is it has nothing, I don't give a, I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anyone, but I don't give two shits about Winnie the Pooh. Well, that's why I responded. I was yeah. like, I don't care enough. To- but it looked like it would be a gross enough movie that I would not enjoy it. Now, if you watched it and said to me, no, it's fucking hilarious, then I would right. watch it. But it looked like it was too slashery for me. I'll probably end up watching it if it bounces up on something, because why not, right? But yeah, I watched the trailer and I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, I still don't care. Yeah. I would like I would like Eeyore to be the murderer. 
It's not. It's poo from yeah. that. It's because Pick poo. Yeah, probably. Because you are some, like the manic depressive. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> We're all living Eeyore right now. <laughs> That's right. So I wanted him to be the one to snap. Why would Pooh snap? Everybody coddles him. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, or it would be Owl. <laughs> I did I did watch Winnie the Pooh a lot as a kid. And then I reached a point and I was like, this is stupid. He can't even spell when I was a kid. <laughs> And then I was all indignant about it. My mom was like, you used to love this, so you can't act like you didn't love it. I I see, I didn't watch it as a kid, or I didn't, it might have been a once in a while thing, but I didn't, so it didn't imprint on me. I didn't read it a lot, and I didn't watch it, so I was all up in um, Looney Tunes and Bugs Bunny. Well, yeah, I watched those too. But those were my, was my big one. I did love Mm Scooby-Doo. That's why I always go back to, can we blame it on teenagers? That seems to be. (laughs) (laughs) It's their fault and their stupid dog that they brought. Anyway, so it's time to go. It is. Thank you for listening. Uh, Check us out on Buy Me a Coffee forward slash M Mayhem. We have a tiered support system now at low as $1 a month support. That helps with our overhead. And either way, thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Mysteries, Monsters, and Mayhem. Find us on Facebook and Instagram or at our website, mysteriesmonstersmayhem.com. Please like, rate, and review, follow, and share wherever your favorite podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening and supporting our podcast. We'll be back next week with more shenanigans.